Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another version of Bill Roten on sports in a, uh, a still undisclosed location in Harlem, USA, away from our normal studios. We are now tucked and buried in the bowels of the, we won't tell you, we never tell anybody <laughs> where we are, and uh, join once again, approaching our 100th podcast, my friend and co-host, the great Jamal Murphy. Great to be here, as usual, in the undisclosed location. Undisclosed location. I guess we will be one more people. We should start telling people where we are. <laughs> not, not yet. Not no. yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, Raisa Kelly's here on the uh, on doing the great job of photographing. It really is nice when you see this stuff. It really is. You do a really great job, Raisa Kelly. And let me just say, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Check it out. Uh, and we're joined, finally, we finally got... Uh Got this guy in the studio, man. We keep on passing him. We saw Laguna Beach, right? Laguna Beach uh, this summer, and I kind of ambushed him and said, "Man, you got to come on the podcast." <laughs> and so he had, he couldn't go anywhere because the Pacific Ocean was right there. But uh, but man, I, this is uh, our guest is the great Lynn Elmore. Um, uh, Lynn Elmore is a uh, I mean, a, a lot of the younger generation knows Lynn as a as a great uh, commentator and color person. Not colored person, but colored person <laughs> for CBS, for CBS they and got, ESPN. They got me from both. <laughs> no, he, he's a great analyst, a really, really, really great analyst for CBS and ESPN. Uh, so uh, the, his resume is is much extensive. Ex I mean, it's ex I mean, let's just first of all, before I go, Lynn, welcome to the show, man. Oh, Thank thanks you so much. It's nice to be here in this undisclosed location. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. See, we forgot to blindfold him. But, I mean, Lynn, you know, first of all, Power Memorial, yep, Power right. Memorial High School, uh, University of Maryland. Uh, All-time all leading rebounder. All still. Yeah, isn't that a shame? <laughs> well. I mean, that, seriously. I mean, that's you play, and game. you didn't play near the number of games. All right. Well, that's the other thing, too. Some guys will come close playing 35 games in a season. Right. But, yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh, All-America at Maryland, uh, a uh, 13th uh Pick you, you were the number thirteen pick in yep. the in the draft. Uh, played ten years, and which is a, I mean ten years in the NBA, man. That's a that. Well, two years in the ABA, but uh, I always, the the NBA does a good job of uh, of hiding obfuscating the fact that a lot of us played in the ABA. Where'd you Rec play? What, what team? Indiana Pacers. Oh, and oh so it stayed with the Pacers, okay. and we were incorporated into the NBA in 1976. But uh, you know, people don't realize that in the incorporation when the four teams went over, the players on those teams pretty much dominated the NBA. When you look at scoring leaders, assist leaders uh, during that period, guys on the all-star team, I mean, disproportionately from four teams, they were very well represented. It was, it was uh, uh, the Nets. 
Jeanette, San Antonio, San Antonio. Denver, wow. and Indiana. Wow, wow, wow. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to go rather than go to, to Washington Bullets, who drafted me also at the time, was um, they offered more money to Pacers did, and, and they were very financially solvent and did my homework. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, had I been drafted by the Virginia Squires or somebody <laughs> like that, <laughs> right. I, I got a feeling I would have been playing in Washington. Right. Um, who was who was on the Indiana team? When you I mean, yeah. Number one, the, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of younger people, don't know about the ABA. I mean, but it was really a, it was really a fun league. I mean, it, it, they had they had the the colored ball. I mean, the multicolored ball. They had the three point shot before. Uh, you know, Dr. J came out. In fact, you guys, he was he was older than you. He, he was he was but maybe yeah, just like, a couple years, just a couple yeah. years older. Yeah. Uh, he left uh, University of Massachusetts, I think, after his freshman or sophomore year. Uh, but, you know, when you talk about fun league, look at the NBA mm-hmm. today. Um, you know, strip it of a lot of the one-on-one and, and focus more on team play, like San Antonio Spurs. Right. Uh, but that's kind of how we were, wide open. Uh, because of the three-point shot was highly prevalent, the NBA didn't have it, and they right. ultimately incorporated it because they recognized what a draw it was. But uh, then you had some quality players. Uh, there are people there um, who people have heard legendary, but mm-hmm. really don't understand how they played. I'm talking about George Gervin. Mm-hmm. George Gervin had a teammate by the name of James Silas, who yeah. was oh, absolutely yeah. Yeah. deadly down the stretch. His nickname was the late Mr. Silas because <laughs> he would dish, dish and get people involved, but when it came down the stretch, he would take over. You know, <laughs> just mid-range shots, driving to the basket, mm-hmm. Um, you know, Denver had uh, guys like Dan Issel. Um, they had uh, Ralph Simpson who played. Bobby Jones was there for a while. David Thompson played there. Yeah, David David got there as well. Um, and then when you're talking about the Indiana Pacers, um, there's LeBron before LeBron was LeBron, and that guy's name is George McGinnis. Oh, great George. People do not understand how great George was. Mm. Now, unfortunately, going to the NBA, um, you know, he followed the money instead of – staying in the hometown because the Pacers couldn't pay him what Philadelphia paid him. Um, but, you know, he got lost in the sauce, so to speak. Because he was a teammate with, Ju- right. with Julius. But George was probably one of the most dominant players, if not the most dominant player I ever played with. Mm. And as I said, he was LeBron before LeBron. I mean, he triple doubles were, you know, his trademark. Mm. All right. Uh, then so then you went from uh, you went from the pay- well the, well then you came into the league yeah right you came into the league that was the year I got hurt though <laughs> you know we we finally get incorporated into the NBA and I wrecked my knee in the preseason and I just played six games that had me wearing this brace the the Nicholas brace Dr James Nicholas mm-hmm. is the same brace that Joe Namath would wear but mm-hmm. that thing weighed a ton <laughs> and after about six games I said I can't play with this I gotta get my knee back together. I just come off a season where I average almost 15 and 10. Mm. Um, and with those numbers today, man, if I was a free agent. Oh, that's <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. Yeah, right? we'd, be li- we'd be living in Laguna Beach. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> what year was that? That was your third year? Uh, yeah, uh, my second year. Second year. Yeah, and mm. third year in, tre- in preseason and training camp, I wrecked mm. my knee. Mm. And okay. So mm. I had to kind of rehabilitate that whole year. But you still played. I mean, you played uh, until 84. You played with the Pacers, yeah. obviously. Uh, Kansas City Kings, the Bucks, the, the Nets, the Knicks. I mean, you know, you had you had a pretty yeah. you know pretty thorough career. Then you went then well you went, traveled, right? <laughs> then you went to Harvard Law School. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, that's probably as much a product as the fact that they didn't pay us like they pay these guys, and I needed a job when mm-hmm. I quit. Right. How, 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 how did that else? happen? I mean, 
we're kind of jumping around here, but you had this great career. When did you decide you were going to go to law school? Um, seventh grade. Oh, really? <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I, you know, look, I, and I tell the story all the time. I, I was the child of television, and, you know, my favorite shows were the justice shows, the Perry Masons and the Defenders and shows like that that, you know, try to uphold civil justice, I mean, and social justice and spoke for the voiceless and gave power to the powerless. And, you know, those are during the times when civil rights struggles were still, you know, at its peak and war in Vietnam was raging. And, you know, I wanted to be, you know, be part of the social activism instead of standing on the sideline watching a parade go by. So, you know, I thought law was the way to change things, you know, as naive as I was. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, it stayed with me the whole time. That, but I also wanted to do other things. Mm. You know, one of my, you know, heroes, the person I wanted to emulate was Paul Robeson. It was mm. by accident. I read a story about mm. him and recognized that he was an All-American football player. Yeah. Matter of fact, is, yeah, uh, the Walter Camp All-American team only had 10 players because they segregated, you know, Paul Robeson during those days. Um, went to Columbia, became a lawyer. He was a concert singer, actor, and activist. Mm. And I said, wow, <laughs> I'd like to do all those things. Mm. I you know, kind of never forgot. Wow. So, but when, I mean, but you could have gone to, uh, but you didn't want to go to Harvard undergrad in other words no I, well i got recruited when i was coming out of high school i got recruited just about everywhere because of mm -hmm. power memorial academy you know christian brothers made sure that you got an education they made sure that you excelled to your greatest extent as well as you know become a, a fine basketball player and i was very fortunate to get the chance to go there i tell people all the time i never played basketball until i was 14 going on 15 i and when i played without any training you know how half court is in new right. york where you go back up with it after the other guy has you know or take it behind you don't the take line. it back yeah. right well in, in manhattan you didn't take it back in queens uh -huh. you had to take it back but, but See, I, in chicago know, we took it we took it back we took it back not only we, we took it back on the side oh really or but yeah that's that was coming east and we, you know, they said, no, 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 no. You we, miss a shot, yeah. and the other guy just puts it yeah. back said, well, in. No way. You got to take it back. Yeah. <laughs> take it back. Yeah. But, uh, but I, you know, I, I tell people I look like Chief from Cuckoo's Nest out mm. there initially. Mm. But having been a baseball player and a football player, I think those athletic skills were transferable. And my sophomore year was a learning experience. My junior year was all city. My senior year was all American. And, you know, kind of the rest was history going to Maryland. So, uh, but combining grades with skill, you know, allowed me to pick and choose anywhere I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. uh, now, where did you grow up in, in, in the, in the you weren't, you're not a Bronx person, right? You grew up in, no, in I, was born, I was born in uh, Bed-Stuy. Okay. Um, lived at 288 Tompkins Avenue, mm -hmm. and then moved to uh, the projects in Chelsea uh, right in the 20s for about a year. Uh, and then we moved to East New York, what used to be called the Boulevard Projects, right next to Starrett City. And our elementary school was right across the street, 273. Um, then my father got a job as a sanitation worker. My father didn't graduate college, uh, high school. He didn't make it past the 10th grade. But he was a truck driver and finally passed the civil service test. And once we did that, uh, bought a home in Queens, mm. um, you know, South Ozone Park, Jamaica, Springfield Gardens area, right near Baisley Park. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth on sports playing up at what was then Woodrow Wilson High School. Now it's August Martin. Um, playing basketball, you know, like I said, three-man. Playing baseball, 
in the summertime from dawn till dusk. Uh, you know, it's a nice neighborhood. We had a had a yard <laughs> that was the size of a postage stamp. You know, when you look and you think about it. Except when my father said, "All right, y'all got to cut the grass." Then, right. it, then it looked <laughs> like Central Park because <laughs> it took forever. Uh, uh, so uh, now, you remember when you, you Chelsea, the Chelsea Project? You know who else grew up there? It was Mimi. We had right, one Mimi of our Valdez. one of our guests uh, from about last month. Really? She did this. Uh, she's a documentarian, and she works with. Uh, Pharrell, Pharrell. Hmm. and she grew up there in the Chelsea Projects too. So you know, producing lots of people. Oh, big time! I'm sure. Well, more, the thing about the neighborhood know. that I loved was the fact that everybody, you know, it's predominantly black neighborhood, and everybody was a civil servant. It's either fireman, policeman, sanitation man, or work for the post office. Hmm. And people had pride in their yards. It was almost competition of roses and edging <laughs> it, and it was wonderful. It was. You know, a great time, great place to grow up, except when the guys came back from Nam and they started bringing that heroin into mm. town and that changed the whole neighborhood. Mm. You know, obviously it affected my family. Lost a couple brothers to that stuff. But um, Blood brothers? And my, yeah, my natural brother. Yeah. Oh, wow. So Older? I mean, was, no, younger, younger. Um, you know, it was, I, maybe I escaped it because it was just at the end when I went to college when that stuff started to proliferate. But, you know, it was, a, it was a great neighborhood, but it got torn apart by that scourge. Mm. Let me ask you a question. How, how um, you know, what you said your brothers got caught up. How, I mean, you were in college, and they were dealing with that. Your family was dealing yeah. with, with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, that, this wasn't on the script because we want to talk about some other stuff, but what was that? Because I never knew that, that particular story. Uh, that hey. must have been, I mean, like just wrenching. It was, um, and you know, I guess in retrospect, I probably compartmentalized it. Here I am down in Maryland, everybody's up there, but I'd get the telephone calls, I'd hear the stories, I'd come back, you know, I'd see my, my middle brother was the one who really was strung out, um, and he was a great athlete. Mm. He, was, he was a great football player, but he got to, went to high school at John Adams, and got caught up with some kids in the neighborhood. Uh, it's interesting because we were in the shadows of Rochdale Village. And at the time, Rochdale Village was predominantly Jewish. Hmm. People don't realize that now, but it was a Jewish cooperative. And you know, folks started to kind of mingle and stuff. But when the drugs came in you know, and the neighborhood started to change, white flight uh, took off. The prevailing thought was, you know, these uh, you know, these kids are bringing these drugs and the folks in Rochdale didn't want their kids to be tainted by it. Little did people know, <laughs> they were the ones, were the ones <laughs> were the who the brought the heroin. Right. No, I'm, I'm telling you, that was the truth. Um, but, you know, within five years, Rochdale changed over from 95% white and Jewish to 95% black. Um, there was still a synagogue there. I don't know if it's still there or not, um, but obviously it wasn't used very much. But it, it's just a a major study, sociological study, and how neighborhoods change. But, you know, it was hard at, at Maryland. And I said, as I said, I compartmentalize. And, you know, I kind of paid for it mentally going over all those years, you know, survivor's guilt and all the other things that are attendant to, you know, having those kinds of lives where you have success and you're leaving folks behind. Is he still with us, your brother? Uh, no, I, I lost that brother uh, who was strung out forever, died of AIDS. Um, mm back in 1985 when I was in law school. And my younger brother, who, you know, dabbled 
went on to play at Wichita State. Was you know he's in their Hall of Fame right wow. now, um, but he wound up being the last cut for the Nets mm. uh, back in I think like seventy seven, seventy eight, and then Rob went over to play in Italy and started hanging out with expats, artists, mm. jazz musicians, that crowd, and wound up ODing. Oh my God! So wow! So that so there were three of you. The four of us. I have a sister who still lives in Louisville. Um, you know, we've all gone through our issues, but she's she's a survivor and she's mm-hmm. doing reasonably well living in Louisville. She's got two children, grown children that are living there. But uh, she and I are it. You know, my mm-hmm. folks passed away. My brother's uh, demise just took it out of my mother. I mean, you could see um, over the years just drained her of life. And unfortunately, my father, who was a survivor, born in Harlem, worked hard, did all these different things. When my mother passed away, moved down to Virginia, but kept the house. Mm. But he'd come up every year to fix it. Um, one day, he had the, his partner couldn't come, so he brought a guy that people recommended who had just gotten out of jail. Uh, brought him up there. Guy was a crackhead. Uh, my father, who's from Harlem, you know, he was not... He was not naive, told him, look, I'll give you half the money now and half the money when you get back so, you know, you don't get tempted. And according to police, the guy probably was going through my father's stuff. My father caught him, guy hit him, hit my father over the head, and that was that. So, Oh, man. But that's, well, I mean, that, that's a New York story. Where, where were you? Um, I was actually in Bloomington, Indiana when I got that call. I was doing a game. Mm. Yeah, this is so, it, it's, it's tragic but you know sometimes you know you don't realize we have these lives i mean lives right. we, yeah. we we work and they know you as this great commentator and cbs and all america and, you know, and there's you know and i, I probably there are other guys in the league who are dealing with like this kind of stuff that to other people doesn't even i mean they don't even know anybody who knows somebody right. who goes through this kind of right. stuff and for a lot a lot of kids particularly a lot of black athletes man this is like the stuff you get to just to get there. I mean, it's yeah. is, is like, you know. Well, the impact on us uh, mentally as well and psychologically. I mean, I've, I've had to go through therapy. I've had to go through a lot of things to try to get myself to a point where, you know, I'm able to deal with, with this kind of reality over, mm. the, over the period of time. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, you know, it's, uh, I've had my issues, and my wife can attest to that. But, <laughs> but we've survived. Um, mm. You know, raised two wonderful kids. Uh, one graduated from Princeton and, you know, got a master's from the Citadel, and he's an assistant coach at Manhattan College. My other son, pre-med and economics uh, major at Columbia, graduated, spent a year at Success Academy teaching kids up in Harlem. Mm. Now he works for um, one of the government consulting companies uh, down in, in Northern Virginia. So, you know, they turned out okay, and that's, that's what you live for. You live You're for right, a be- right. the better life for them uh, better than you had it. And, uh, you know, I think that they understand their history. They understand from whence they come. But by the same token, it's not going to be an anchor to hold them back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've done a lot of lot of stuff. I mean, obviously, we talked about going to Harvard Law. You were an assistant DA. Right. Um, which is interesting in and of itself. Well, how did that right. <laughs> How from, did that happen? From the ABA, NBA right. to assistant Because, you know, Jamal, Jamal's a lawyer, too, man. Okay. He's he's slumming too doing this. You know, doing this <laughs> That's right. This sports do, stuff. Do, do what I love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm doing, yeah. right? But you're right. ABA, NBA, and then ADA. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which, which one was the best experience? Um, you know what? 
I think the most rewarding experience was when I was able to exercise my community responsibility as a, a prosecutor. I mean, you know, when you think about yourself as a player, you know, you're an entertainer, and in some ways you're taking. Mm. And ultimately, when I got to the DA's office in Brooklyn, I felt like I was giving because I wasn't making any money. <laughs> and I was working long days and going right. through a lot of angst and dealing with a lot of stuff. Um, but I made the decision, when I was in law school, I wanted, I thought I was gonna be a defense attorney. Remember right. I talked about um, you know, the thing, social justice and, and wanting to stand up. And I, in Massachusetts, as a third year student, you're allowed to participate in preliminary hearings. That's essentially the same thing as a grand jury trying to find probable cause to bound a defendant over. And I had one case where a defendant was charged with aggravated rape. And the poor woman had to take the stand and I had to cross-examine her and tear mm. her story apart, mm. which was painful. Right. And I finally said, I can't do this. Um, but my supervisor, who was a former U.S. attorney, said, look, you know, two ways to go with this. You can be reactive as a defense attorney, or you can be proactive. If that DA hadn't overcharged, we wouldn't be here. Right. And that's where discretion comes in. You're, you seem like more comfortable with proactivity. So why don't you go to the other side? Why don't right. you go to the DA side? Now, you know, I, my third year paper in Harvard was um, the Batson versus Kentucky jury discrimination and, you know, the ability of defense attorneys to, um, strike people, um, you know, do a peremptorily strike folks, and many times they did it on the basis of race. And my argument was similar to Justice Marshall's argument in that prosecution, you know, probably doesn't need peremptories at all. Um, that, you know, because we have the weight of government, that the people that you impanel in the jury um, and make sure that the grand juries are diverse. People in panel and the jury, essentially, you don't need to utilize that because you have that weight of evidence and you assume that people are going to listen. So I wrote that, but after I looked at it and I'm deciding where I wanted to work, the only district attorney who filed an amicus to support Batson was Elizabeth Holtzman in Brooklyn. Hmm. And that was fortuitous. I said, hmm, I'm going there. <laughs> That's an enlightened prosecutor. And it was a great experience. And you did some police misconduct. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I was on a Bureau of Law Enforcement Investigations Bureau, which was highly controversial, and you know the police did not want that. Right. Uh, but we did, you know, investigate uh, police misconduct, um, violence, brutality, those types of things. Any law enforcement officer, corrections and otherwise. Um, you talk about the toughest cases to be able to try and sure. get convictions, even with judges, not just juries, but even judges. I had one case where the forensics were totally on my side. The cop lied. He fired into a, a vestibule, thought he saw a gun pointing at him. The guy was shot in the back. Mm. And, I mean, we had all of this stuff. The judge still dismissed it. Right. Um, because obviously at the time, you know, they didn't want to jeopardize it. Every time you have a complaining witness in those cases, they usually have a record. They're usually not the best witnesses to have, and people make that judgment. Am I going to ruin this police officer's life for this guy? But And we're, now the irony is we're going over that same well, stuff. It's the exact same. Well, the thing I was going to ask you, how, how do you think um, this new election, uh, the, the new election is going to affect this kind of stuff? Because, like you said, it's been tough 
it's been tough even with a black man in the White House and, and, a, and, a, and a black uh, attorney general. So how do you think, and we've been talking about this off mic, um, but how do you think that the new administration and, and the choices are going to affect this kind of this kind of stuff? Well, I'm hopeful that we've come too far to take you know steps backwards, but I'm not confident that that's not going to happen. And the one thing I can say, particularly for New Yorkers who lived during that time in the early mid-80s, think about this. People were emboldened when Rudolph Giuliani became mayor. How many of those cases grew when when he took over? And, you know, you heard in the Diallo case, you know, it's Giuliani time. You know, I'm afraid you're going to hear a lot of Trump time. I mean, look who endorsed him. Fraternal Order of Police, the National Fraternal Order of Police endorsed Trump. Now, I'm not saying that's evil unto itself, but people are looking for license to do some of these things, and, you know, I'm fearful that's going to happen. And now they named Jeff Sessions Attorney <laughs> General. He's in charge of the Civil Rights Division. It's, <laughs> it's unfathomable, but it's almost like uh, they want to obviously make up for, for lost time as far as the Obama administration. And Obama... He 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 made, he did some some very good things, but he was not the most, you know you know he took his time with with in certain areas. Right, right, right. Uh, he he was very thought out. There were people on the left that wanted him to do much more than he did, but the things that he was able to accomplish, it it looks like they're going to try to reverse that very fast. Yeah, I mean, look, Eric Holder, um, who was Attorney General for the longest period of time under President Obama, I mean, he was pretty aggressive in, right. in his civil rights division right. going after these kinds of cases where there was evidence. Right. He was even-handed. I mean, when there wasn't, he wouldn't take a case where the evidence didn't show um, violation of civil rights, right. which is kind of a backup in those kinds of pr- police brutality, police homicide cases. But now you have a guy who, during the civil rights struggles, was going after the victims and, you know, trying to convict them of voter fraud and when the Voting Rights Act was passed and things of that nature. Jeff Sessions is not a friend of voting rights or civil rights for people of color. And he's on, I think he's on record as saying that the NAACP and other organizations were un-American. Yep. So it's not looking, and also Trump ran on this platform. When they asked him about police relations or mi- minority police relations, the first thing out of his mouth was law and order. Right, exactly. Uh, so this good old buzzword. I read <laughs> Lee Atwater stood up in his grave and saluted. <laughs> so, you know, oh God, let's just end the, let's just end the broadcast now. <laughs> but, but, I mean, because that this clearly I was listening to our, our podcast. As well. I mean, it is pretty dismal. I mean, I, I want to obviously get into talking about the, you know Duke in Kentucky but I mean <laughs> but I mean you know I, I guess one of the questions as we kind of segue out of that is I mean because you've come through the system it, not just as a, you, you went from being uh, an athlete an all-american athlete a pro athlete then you went to got into law you know and you, and you start prosecuting the law and now you I guess you see how the law works now you see where we are as a nation and I guess the question becomes, if, if this were a competition, if, if you were coaching a team, it sounds okay, how do we make the adjustment? What what adjustments? I mean, I mean, you can't just, you know, our people, if you look at your grandfather, my grandfather, they've clearly went through, mm-hmm. either, I, I want to say worse, but their norm, the norm was this. Obama was Camelot. I mean, that was four years of like a little reprieve. Eight. 
Yeah, eight, eight, eight years of a reprieve. Right. Seems like four yeah, now. No, right. 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 Seems yeah. like it's about four months. Considering <laughs> what we got coming. It seems like, wow, man. You know, but so, so I guess the question is sort of where, what's the, what's the, 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 the strategy? What's the, uh, you know, how, how do we kind of get, get through this? Say still. <laughs> well, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the basketball analogy and I'm the coach of, the team that's behind, which, you know, progressives, we seem to be, and moder- even moderates mm-hmm. seem to be behind. My st- strategy would be press, mm-hmm. you know, continue to press and put pressure on, you know, the powers that be to maintain, because it's the apathy is really the friend of, you know, those who want to turn back the clock. Right, and that's, that's kind of what happened to some extent, apathy, the voter turnout was low. Things could have been different. I mean, uh, Clinton won the the uh, popular vote almost by two million. It could have been even more. And and if people would have come out to vote, states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, even Ohio could have been a little different. Well, you know, they said that she lost Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan by less than 110,000 votes. And someone made the analogy that that's the same amount of people you can fit in uh, the big house in Michigan. Hmm. Think about wow. that. Wow, that's true. Maybe that maybe this, maybe should have like had a I don't know like a concert or something. <laughs> and well, she, she did. She did in <laughs> Philly. Did. You didn't have to worry oh, about Philly though. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, 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 right. But that was that was part of the the problem. But I, mean, I, I guess the thing is, as we've got to kind of move on, is that um, and we've talked about this all the time. I mean, the Democrats had eight 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 years, mm. and Nobody has gotten twelve straight since since Roosevelt, right? And you know what I'm saying. So you, it's almost like it's just wrong place, wrong time, wrong because it was it almost wasn't going to happen. We are susceptible to the pendulum swing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what we have. When, with President Obama, we went this far, yeah. but so many different firsts, so many dreams and ideals, and now we've come the other way. At some right. point, you hope the thing would balance in the middle. At least, if it's not going to swing back right. in a direction that, in my mind, is more progressive, more fair, um, more just. Right. But it can't swing back to the point where you know we're seeing uh, a retrograde, if you will. Well, um, Republicans are very good at that. You know, Democrats will swing it a certain, you know, a certain uh, level one way, but Republicans are known to swing it. Further, all the way, further the other way. So it takes double the time to get back to to, to the middle, a lot, and that's that's what I'm worried about. And you, and you talk about a full court. You know, we, we uh, the Democrats or lib or uh, progressives need a full court press. They need that old school Georgetown full court press yeah. where the you know we're Fallon and yeah, you know we we're need, scrapping. We need, we need Patrick Ewing, and we're not we're not worried <laughs> we're not worried about you know what the other side is going to say, what the media right. is going to say, not worried about who, who, you know, whose side of the story is being told. You need to make it happen because the Republicans are good at that. They make it happen. But what is, what, what interesting, is, the interesting part about it, and maybe to put a period on this, is what we've forgotten is that, you know, Trump is going to name the, the uh, ninth member of the court. Right. And you talk about a game, this is the referee. You know, is the referee going to call these fouls? That's the problem. We can sit, we can press, and if the referee's not going to call these fouls, then you got to be even more aggressive. And I'm not saying take to the streets and burn things down because that is absolutely socially reprehensible and irresponsible. 
Um, you know, I, there's no way in the world that any uh, responsible person can condone that. But you certainly need to speak out and you need to magnify the injustices that are occurring. You know, is, are they going to roll back Roe v. Wade? I mean, women need to step up and speak. Men Right. In the same way, you know, are we going to further decimate the Voting Rights Act? I mean, look at voter suppression and mm-hmm. some of the other things that occurred during this election cycle. It's unimaginable. But you cannot sit pat and be complacent and say, oh, well. Mm. And, I, and I think that uh, as, as we are kind of, you know, sifting to the debris of the election. And, and again, that's of those I mean, the other people celebrating. So, you know, but I think that. Um, it, it's one thing to protest during Camelot, you know, and, and but now this is now it's kind of back. This is when you, you really need to have your voice, and it's and it's going to be hard, and there are going to be consequences. You know, I think you could argue under the past last eight years, you know, you could have Cornell and people, and then it was kind of okay. You know, it was almost like a scrimmage, mm-hmm. but now this is not. This is live now, and and if you're going to protest with this Kaepernick, and let's let's just bring it into our arena. Where you do have these young black ass and athletes, period, right. white athletes too, who are now uh, protesting, and and who I think are raising some, and that's encouraging to me. In that now you've got one of the most visible aspects of our society, young people who are actually raising their fists or stepping back and protesting, and I think you know what that's that's I think is healthy. Um, particularly given the, the last 20 minutes of what we've been talking about. It's not only healthy, it's, it's necessary. I mean, that, that to me is for those who want to stifle dissent, for those who want to silence, you know, the voice of, of fairness and justice and, you know, want to maintain a status quo or even, you know, go back and be reactionary. The worst nightmare because of how sports is so enmeshed into our society, their worst nightmare is to have the most visible athletes have impact mm-hmm. on their children. Look at Colin Kaepernick right. and what he did. And suddenly high schoolers mm-hmm. are taking knees and understanding what it is they're doing. And some people, you know, they're fighting back in a way that's draconian. There was, um, in Texas, there was one football, youth football group right. that canceled the whole season because <laughs> those kids took a knee. Yeah. That shows you that that stuff is working. And canceled then, the whole season. Yeah, I mean, we may not necessarily skip a generation, but in the next four years, those 12, 14-year-olds are going to be 18-year-olds, 16, 18-year-olds. And, you know, the 16-year-olds are going to be 20-year-olds. They're going to vote, and they're going to have a voice. And that's the fear that the impressionable, which many of them are with our athletes, are going to now stand up and take notice. That, that's what activism is all about, and I'm happy to see it, even when I don't agree with some of the stuff they're saying. Like what? Like, like, well, Nigel like Hayes walking around saying he's a broke athlete when in fact he's not and you know the argument about paying student athletes which is a whole different story that, i don't another, know if you got time for that well we do we do we're gonna get to that a little a little later but i i want to i want to but i'm happy that they i'm yeah, happy right, that they right. stand up and they're, they're vocal yeah i mean i was thinking about this today now you got you know america seen the dallas cowboys alabama football now you know that a lot of people who love those teams or people who voted for Trump. I mean, there are a lot of people yeah. going through, through, through a certain degree of, of conflict because they're, they're, they're cheering for Clemson. They're cheering for Alabama. They're cheering for the Dallas Cowboys. They're cheering for the Golden State Warriors. Well, maybe not Golden State. But, this, you, know, you know what I'm saying? But they're cheering for these teams where all these black men are dominating. 
And it's always, I guess Spike Lee kind of dealt with it a little bit. It's right. just, you talk about earlier compartmentalizing. Right. I was just thinking about that today. How are they, how do they, what do you, what do you do? You're, you're this racist kind of person. And that's just saying, could you vote for Trump, you're racist. But let's say for, for the sake of argument, you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's just, just here you're cheering for, for Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys in Texas with his brother who has completely transformed the entire franchise going from this mediocre kind of the Tony Romo thing to like, oh no, we're actually probably going to go to the Super Bowl with his young brother. But then knowing that I'm in Texas, I don't, you know, black people, I don't know. You know, I like the, the direction of Trump and all that, but yet I like I like this team that's like 80% black and it's led by this black quarterback. What, you know. Right. Not just, and not just the fans, we're talking about the right. earliest coaches. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wearing that helmet, in many ways though, makes you racially anonymous. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, it's okay between those lines. You wear that helmet. You got all colors on, man. You show out. Uh, but as soon as the game's over and you come out of that locker room, you got to know where you are and know who you are, because there's always somebody who's going to take your place. Mm-hmm. Is what I'm feeling that some of these folks are really thinking. We always got somebody who's going to take your place. Sure, we'll we'll give you a little bit more quarter than you know your brother who's standing outside the stadium wishing that he was in there. We'll give you a little more quarter because you, you're helping us. But in the end, you better know where you are. And if you get in trouble, you're going to be treated like everybody else. Why don't we, we're going we're gonna to take a break. When I come back, just kind of stay in this vein because you were also an agent. Yeah. For, for a while. And that was a whole nother enlightenment. That's a whole nother <laughs> Tell me about thing. it. Uh, so why don't we take a quick break and then we'll come back. Uh, with Our guest is great Lynn Elmore, um, uh, CBS. ESPN. Now Fox. Harvard Law. Yeah, Fox. Fox. ESPN, let me go over since they're having some major issues and cutting a lot of people back. And so I'm not exclusive to them anymore, which kind of I'm happy about. Oh, good. You're off the plantation. Or, or you're, you're, free, you're free to go to other plantations. <laughs> free at last. Yeah. Free well, at last. Free at last. We'll go to this plantation. I mean, that, if, if you really look at the, our condition in the United States, it's not like some people say, well, you know, I'm going to go back to, you know, like, the diaspora is very diverse. So, like, could it be a brother from Nigeria? So, you know what? It's getting. To, I'm gonna go back to Nigeria. Somebody. I'm gonna go back to. Well, that's, well I'm gonna go back to. I'm go to Chicago. <laughs> you know. I mean, this is kind of it. You know. <laughs> and so you're all. So you go to plantation, plantation. You find. You know. You like, well. This is. You know. This is a good one. On Sundays, we don't have to work. Well, Saturdays you got off. So, you know, Fox, ESPN, CBS. I mean, it's. You know. Anyway, listen, we'll be we'll be back. Hope you'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back after a short break. We're back at a still undisclosed location, Harlem, USA, back with Bill Roden on sports. Uh, Jamal Murphy here, and our guest is uh, the great Lynn Elmore. And Lynn, you know, before we were, uh, you know, we talked a lot about politics and stuff. Then we started segueing into athletes and activism. And you saw whatever the mentality is firsthand because you you, you were an agent. You decided Mm -hmm. to get in the agent business. Now, what made you, you, you had this job, you were prosecutor you were you know had this, you were a DA and the assistant DA and all that what made you want to get 
in, into that side of the, of the sports industry? Well, at that time, there were so many stories, horror stories being disseminated about guys who had been taken, guys who had lost you know, all of their uh, hard-earned uh, money, you know, guys who were being exploited by teams. And you know, I finally figured, okay, I've got some tools. I've got an understanding. I've been where a lot of these kids are about to go. Maybe we can have some positive impact on them as they move forward through this game, whether it's basketball, football, et cetera. And, you know, my motto, you know, our mantra in, in my company, which was called Precept Sports and Entertainment, was self-reliance and community responsibility. You know, I told guys that, you know, as long as you're my client, we're going to continue to work with you, teach you, you know, even the, the, the most mundane things, whether it's balance a checkbook or whatever, we're going to make sure that you're introduced to areas of life that when your career is over, um, you can make that segue just like I did. Mm. Um, in fact, towards the end of your career, hopefully you'll be educated enough where you don't need me anymore. Um, and that was really what we wanted to do. I'm proud of the fact that we had seven first round picks in basketball, a couple of uh, you know, high, high draft picks in the NFL. Uh, represented Olympic athletes, um, and just about every one of them, and I would say not just about, every one of them is relatively successful, own their own businesses, they have their money, they're um, you know doing a lot of the positive things that they want. And this was back in uh, 1992. We were in business for about four and a half years. What, what, what was eye-opening about that experience? I know along the way we talked, you and I talked, several times mm -hmm. along the, the way when you were going through that. What were some of the eye-opening um, the things that even as an athlete, somebody who was a professional athlete you went through, what are some of the eye-opening things uh, that happened? <laughs> the, the, probably the ends to which the competition would go in order to sign clients. Uh, that to me, when the money became bigger, athletes, they didn't have the one-and-done rule. You know, they still had guys coming out and they were paying inordinate sums of money to high school seniors to come play. And they made a lot of mistakes. But because of that, and even when the Wade scale kicked in uh, for rookies, the competition was so steep because the money was so large and guys were willing to do anything. That's one of the reasons why I only lasted five years, because in order to be more successful, I probably would have to stoop to conquer. I'd have to wow. do the same things these guys were doing. And I had a license. I got a reputation. I wasn't going <laughs> to jeopardize it for any of that stuff. But, I mean, you're talking about having uh, keys to a, a Range Rover in a guy's dorm mailbox. Mm. You're talking about, you know, buying guys uh, a wardrobe of clothing. Um, you're talking about taking them to clubs and, you know, getting them right. – <laughs> tipsy and, and getting them to sign. It was unbelievable. And the problem was, and of course, paying the athletes. And I tried to tell guys, look, suppose we were dentists. You know, would you go to a dentist who paid you to be his client? Right. I'm serious. And, right. But it still, it, it didn't resonate. Uh, you'd, I'd go into homes with kids now towards the end of the career and try to pitch to the parents. And the parents would listen and they said, we love what you say. Now, you know, so-and-so said that they could get us $50,000, and, you know, what can you give us? Mm -hmm. And I said, all I can give you is my best wishes because I'm out of here. I can't, <laughs> I can't do this. Right. Um, and, and I finally got to the point where it just wasn't market feasible for us to stay in business because I wasn't going to do that. Was, was there a lot of the, of the white man's ice is colder? 
kind of thing? Um, to a certain extent, but I, I'll tell you, I, I had some good clients. I mean, you know, a couple who were related to University of Maryland. The biggest problem was um, my final client, Joe Smith, who was the number one pick in the draft. Joe's terrific guy, still is. We still have a good relationship. Uh, his family kind of got in the way, though, and they were getting banged from every side about how they could do a better job. I remember one instance where the shoe deal. Now, we went to Nike, and Nike ultimately put together a deal that was going to make Joe like the fifth highest paid player on their roster behind Michael, Scottie Pippen, David Robinson, you know, guys like that. And, you know, I said, that's a good deal. But we went to the others. We went to Reebok. We went to Fila. Now, of course, somebody whispered in the family's ear, oh, he's a first-round pick. He's supposed to get more than that. Well, you know, this is what the offer was. Why didn't he go to Fila? Because Grant Hill's got this deal. Well, I knew Grant Hill's deal was based upon sales, and it wasn't selling very well. And the reason I knew that, because the guy who was doing the deal was my high school teammate and college teammate, Japheth Trimble. Hmm. Yeah, and they said, well, why don't you go to Reebok? Reebok just fired Shaq because they weren't big guys don't sell shoes. And the reason I know that is because the guy who was doing the Reebok deal was my law school classmate, Jeff Orridge, who is now the commissioner of the CFL. And finally, we go to Nike, and I know that they've got the best deal. Why? Because the guy who was shepherding that deal was my college teammate, Howard White. Now, how connected? None of these guys had any of those connections. But they were throwing these numbers out, and the family believed it. And ultimately, you know, it just got in the way. Uh, Joe was a mama's guy, and, you know, his mother decided she was going to listen to these other people. Um, I think one of the agents came and said that, Joe, you're going to be the next Kevin Garnett. I'm going to make you the next $100 million player because he was rookie of the year that year. Mm. So they wound up firing me, which, you know, okay, fine. Problem was, Joe goes with this guy that promised him all of that. And the next thing you know, the Minnesota Timberwolves get sanctioned by the NBA. They lose draft picks every other year. Kevin uh, McHale, who's a general manager, got, um, you know, he got reprimanded and probably suspended. And Eric Fleischer, who was the agent who promised all of this, got sanctioned by the uh, union for making, you know, a deal that you weren't supposed to be making. That was the underhandedness, and as I said, the extent to which guys would go to get clients. And just finally turned the light bulb on and said, I, you know, it's just not tenable to, to run a business like this and do the right thing if you can't go out and get clients without doing these things that they're doing. So, so is it, you feel like it's a lost cause, that whole deal? And, and we, you know, you can go all the way back to AU. We can get into that whole conversation as far as that's concerned, I mean, the young kids coming up in the game and then eventually being draft picks, is it a lost cause? I mean, is there any way to make it better? Um, I think that it's gotten better because of the visibility all these horror stories have gotten. Uh, is it a lost cause? Not necessarily, simply because, again, now you got one and done. You know, you got a year, and, and some of these guys have been, you know, they've been approached and they've been kind of handled since they were in travel team AAU or whatever by agents. Some of these agents are actually running these AAU teams. But in the end, I would suffice it to say that the majority of what's going on out there, something has been violative of rules, and maybe those rules are minor, and maybe in the grand scheme of things, maybe the things that they've done, maybe we should kind of make them um, uh, you know, much less of a transgression. But I, I still think from a morality standpoint, from a competitive standpoint, 
uh, there's a lot that still has to be done. I mean, they're talking about having agents now be able to talk to kids while they're in college, among other things, you know, including the pay-for-play stuff, which if you can't trust them to do <laughs> the things uh, right by them when they're pros, why would you allow them in college? I mean, it's like letting the fox into the hen house uh, pretty much. But in the end, I, you know, I, as I said, I, I think that there's enough scrutiny and there are enough horror stories. Antoine Walker goes around and tells people how he lost $100 million and how his handlers allowed him to do that. Um, he takes the responsibility, but I think there's still some professional and fiduciary responsibility that the pros, you know, the financial managers and the agents need to take as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, though, though I must tell you, I mean, if if you're committed to spending a hundred million dollars in a week, there's there's nothing that anybody could do. Maybe maybe they'll stop you at maybe one, you know, five ninety nine or something. But if you're committed in your mind. It, it, you know, to, to, to doing that, and you you know, and, and you don't understand money, you don't understand the psychology of money, but you don't talk about money. But throw the roadblocks in front of them. I mean, there are a lot of things, spendthrift clauses and things of that nature that can combat you losing everything and not having anything. I think, I think Allen Iverson, somebody finally did something along those lines, and it wasn't the agent. I think it might have been the shoe it, company. It was, I company. Could be, it was the shoe company that recognized <laughs> that. It wasn't the agent. No, no. It was, I think, in fact, he now is in a position where he's going to get, I think, what, what is he now, like 45 or something like that? He gets, this is when it's coming due, like the, right, the, the right. big part of his, you know, money's coming due. Let, let me ask you this, because this is really fascinating. I'm, I'm really fascinated with the whole, uh, what I call the, um, the production side uh, the, uh, of the industry, you know, uh, the um, supply side. The mm -hmm. supply side of the industry, which is AAU and all that, and all these guys. In fact, before I left the Times, uh, I started doing these columns. These guys, most of these white guys, who do these things like Hoop Mountain and 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 I mean, one guy I was up at the camp of Yale, which is by the way just for Division Three, and I've got a nephew who's been on our show, who uh, coaches at Middlebury. Yeah, my son played in that. Um, my my son, who's coaching in Manhattan College, played in that. The the hoop the. Uh, it, and then there's, there's another one, the, the Pump Brothers. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, to me, <laughs> oh, it's, it's these guys. And you look at these guys; they never played anything, but yet they're making like thousands of dollars. And I'm thinking, right. and I wonder what you think about that. We talk about as black athletes, what ownership, but to me, we're looking at ownership. We're looking at the wrong part. We're looking at this high end, but you can easily own this part of the industry, because it, it, it seems like it's a lot of money, but if you're the 15th guy on the bench, you could easily go in with other guys. You could, we could control the, the whole AAU route, the, the Hoop Mountain kind of thing. We could basically own that. Well, I mean, the shoe companies. There, is, there, there is a, a movement afoot. Uh, I know a young man who used to work in my company. Um, his name is Mike Anderson, and he started a, uh, a youth football league a bunch of years ago that is now starting to prosper. Under Armour has started to recognize the value of it. You know, you kind of wish the University of Maryland would recognize it. after the last two weeks of getting outscored 120-something to <laughs> six. On the, but, you know, it's almost like a grassroots program. The difference, though, between some of the names you mentioned and this program is that there's empathy for the plight and condition and you know, the future of these kids. And there's a, a level of morality and ethics that 
you know, not taking money from other people to try to influence them, not exposing them to the vultures out right. there, to really being protective of these kids and getting them focused on going to school and being able to compete in the classroom as well. And, and I think with Mike Anderson's group and a couple of the others around the country, people are starting to recognize that. Now, is he making a lot of money? I don't think so. But nevertheless, I mean, the potential to be able to, you know, make sure that that product that goes in is a product that's going to succeed. Um, now, whether it's fair or not, when they expend all those resources and, and all that emotion and blood, sweat, and tears to, to help develop these kids with the parents, and the parents are in, in concert with all of this, you know, whether it's fair that they don't make anything or not remains to be but seen. They, but I think this could really be profitable. When I'm studying these guys, like the one guy I, I was, uh, up at Yale, this guy, what he does is that A, he consults. Mm -hmm. First of all, he's got these three video guys, and they will go and they'll videotape, and these guys will pay him like $2,000 to make a video of their kid. And he does this like at all these different camps. And so he'll video, so I'm like, well, how hard is that? And then, but if you're, if you're the 15th guy on an NBA team, right? Now, this guy who's doing all the video stuff, I'm sure it's, he's expending money, but if you wanted to come in and really do what he's doing and triple it, better equipment, and not only that, if I'm in the NBA and we're together, the, the attractiveness is the athlete. So I'm, we're going to have all these key athletes, whether it's Hoop Mountain or this or that, because we are the industry. So I'm just saying that it seems like like black athletes and their lawyer or whoever can begin to control this whole grassroots thing, the AAU thing. I mean, I ain't even talking about moralities right now. I'm just talking about you could actually just control it. Much easier than you could, because you like, well, True. ownership of the high, what else? That let's let's control, let's control the raw material, and we and we are the raw material. Why can't we control? We're the and raw you material. Probably, and you probably have more influence at that level, because of who you are. If you're uh, an athlete, uh, prominent athlete, or even you know, as the 15th, a, a ex athlete, right? Ex, or even think about it, even the fifteenth guy. Well, that's prominent to me. I mean, that <laughs> is prominent. In other words, for a lot of people, this fifteenth guy. Is a star in his in right, his that, that he was a star in college, <laughs> and he's right. a star in his neighborhood. You come back, right. and you play in the NBA, right. or you play in the D League. Now the D League, I think they're doubling their money. Exactly, right. We are. What is it? I guess what I'm saying is that if we're like eighty percent of the NBA, roughly, you know, seventy whatever, or in in the NFL, those numbers mean nothing if you're not. There's no economic. That's like having a three on one break. And you always, you never know how to, you never know how to make the right pass. So, it's not three on one break, and you take a jump shot instead of getting a layup and miss. Yeah. Or don't yeah, exactly. <laughs> guys, why don't? So, my my point in this, and maybe I'm not articulating, is that when I'm seeing these guys like like Mike Rice over at Rutgers, he's got this. He works as his consultant. Hoop, he's doing hoop this, group. The, the hoop group, and then there's this and that, and I'm like. If brothers just focus on this, you can. This ain't brain. A is not rocket science. You're making some money, and it does. It doesn't cost. It doesn't cost that much money. You know who the model for that is? My ex-teammate John Lucas. Yeah, yeah. His program it, down in Houston, and now John is taking a job as player development for um, Houston Rockets. But for the years, 
for years, John has had programs that have done just that. Exactly. Um, and, you know, he's, he's done pretty well. Uh, but, and he would be the model for it. But, again, you need people with the willingness to get involved. You need people who have the resources to be able to, you know, at least start the program, launch it. And then you also need the community support. Um, and, and for a lot of guys, you know, that's, that's work. You're talking about guys, even the 15th guy in the league. I mean, during the summertime, and instead of going to Cancun or something like that, you know, they'd have to be involved in this. And, you know, guys just don't seem to have the willingness or the desire. Now, that's something for maybe retired guys. That's something actually to discuss with the, uh, with the players' union since they're looking for other opportunities um, to have impact. And she actually, Michelle Rob was actually, because we, we had this kind of discussion, mm-hmm. you know, because it's really, to be honest, it was the only kind of discussion you really be having is how do we own, how do we control? Because, you know, if you look at the election and that kind of stuff, there are a whole lot of people, man, like they're, they're, they're rolling back a lot of stuff, and there are a lot of people not happy with this. Right. They are not happy with this. It's just that it's so talent driven that the process of rolling it back is not quite like rolling back Roe v. Wade or mm-hmm. where you, by definition, you've already got the vote. Here, it's different because 80% of the league, I mean, it's, it's, to, to roll that kind of stuff back, I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's difficult. But the pressure, there's a window of opportunity to get all this stuff done. But here's your competition. Your competition is the NBA. Because remember, several years ago, they had this group called iHoops. Yes. Yeah, and you were I was on I was yes. on the board of directors. Yes. And initially, the mission was a broader way to utilize the game of basketball, obviously for health reasons, to you know increase physical activity, to get kids involved and hooked on the game, to use it as a, as a threshold to get kids more involved in education, et cetera. And it was a joint venture between the NCAA and the NBA. Now, the NCAA under Miles Brand really focused on it to use it in a way to increase capability from an academic standpoint. Um, also to counsel kids, to help them focus on the education mission in college, et cetera. The NBA wanted to be a part of that because when you take a look at it, they don't want to be left out. Exactly. <laughs> However, for purely anything basketball, they want to be. However, and you know what we did under my tenure because ultimately the the C, original CEO left. I was kind of drafted in, into that position. Now, in our tenure, we were looking at developing a good housekeeping seal of approval on these travel games. You know, a lot of times kids were leaving on Thursdays to play Friday games, and then there were Sunday games, and they wouldn't get home till Monday, and they're missing all of the school. You know, there's also recruiting issues. There were other issues, safety issues, that we really wanted to have a set of rules and policies by which the AAU teams and, and other travel teams would, would run. And we were working in conjunction with the AAU. Um, you know, we had a, a seminar uh, every, every summer to bring in the top 125 kids in to teach them everything about what's the right fork and <laughs> knife to use to, you know, how do you achieve, um, you know, academic parity with your other classmates and still play the game. Just a lot of social skills right. that were developed. Well, after a while, the NCAA backed off. Miles Brand passed away, and mm-hmm. suddenly it wasn't a priority for them. Yeah. You know, they were half of the funding. And the NBA, seeing an opportunity, all they wanted to do was make sure, I talked about the top 125, they wanted to make sure that they grabbed that top 50 kids and were able to you know, essentially control and guide them. And we see that now. I hoops ultimately when I left 
because I just butted heads with the representative from the NBA who, you know, kept trying to guide us in that direction. I said, no, no, our mission is this. So finally, you know, I wound up leaving. Um, it didn't last maybe another year. And now they folded it into USA Basketball. Mm. You know, Jerry Colangelo had always wanted it to be there. But again, it's a control situation. Now they have control to make sure these kids, if they can, go from the travel teams to playing for USA Basketball under 15, under 17, under 18. And then ultimately they get in the league and, and now they are fully indoctrinated to play for the Olympic team. And that was their goal. But you see the competition, you see the methodology. That's the same methodology that can be used in a different way by the folks that you just spoke of. But that, that is the competition. And it, yeah, and that's that's tremendous. a hell of a competition. It's great competition. But, but, but consciousness would, would basically trump that competition. Because basically, if you've got a great consciousness, and, 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 and you're talking about young, black, for the most part, men, mm -hmm. and let's say we've got this kind of consciousness, it doesn't matter how much money they're saying, well, you know what? We want to do this. This is what we want to do. Like when, when Ali, you know, when Ali, you know, when the Nation of Islam backed Ali and, 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 and Malcolm kind of got involved and all that, there are instances in, in our history where consciousness trumps money. Right. And, 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 and you've seen it. What the most devastating thing to the United States in any war we fought, when people are willing to die, your opponent is basically saying, shit, we want you to kill us. That's what freaks us out because we are such a materialistic person where life means everything, material. And when you're saying, like when Ali said, take the belt, that's when we start getting freaked out as a country. So Isn't that what Michael Corleone said when he saw the, <laughs> the Cuban guy blow up? He says, well, they're not going to win this thing because these folks are willing to die for right. this cause. You know, that's, that's the end. That's a game changer right there. And that's been basically our history. And maybe that's the point I was trying to make when we talk about Trump. I think that, that you know, when you talk about the pendulum, sometimes as a people, we go so far afield, we kind of forget what the mission was, like what our grandparents, what, there's a mission here. But I think sometimes, whether it's a black president, whatever, you know, he's, ah, it's promised land, you know. And then, some, you know, there's always a Moses person, you know, saying, listen, you know, y'all better pick up your shit and go because there's a big monsoon coming. Y'all can stay here if you want, but we got to pick it up. And then people say, oh, man, we're happy. Here. So what, you, we got to go. <laughs> I'm telling you, we got to go. I know you're happy here, but it's just an illusion. And I think that's kind of where we are. It's like everybody, oh, man, we got to go. Yeah, we got to go again. I know it's cool. You know, we Beyonce in the White House, but now we got, if you stay here, you stay here at your peril because this, this is about right. to get, <laughs> this is about to get turned into a monsoon. So that's where we are. Yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. Listen, how about Kentucky now? So <laughs> let's just talk. We're going to come, we could take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll, Al, we'll, 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 we'll talk about what you do. You, you watch college basketball, so you're going to tell us, you know, top five team. Uh, we're going to talk a little about Calipari, you know, and, um, you know, and all that. So anyway, we'll be back in two seconds.
we're back um, in Harlem, USA with the great Lynn Elmore. So Lynn, we've talked about Trump, we've talked about the, the assistant district attorney, we've talked about being an agent, um, we talked about the conveyor belt, we've talked about supply side. Uh, let's talk some hoops, you know. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of it, you know, Duke, Kentucky. Uh, you know, tell us, for the people who are like, you know, doing their fantasy teams or whatever, <laughs> Give us your ranking of, of, of like these in April. In April, what is this top ten going to look like? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I can tell you right now. I mean, on paper, there's there's an awful lot to be said for Duke. Mike Shashevsky always has a way to kind of take this young talent and, and blend it and mold it and get pretty much the most out of them. But they're still young, and we've seen in the past if they come up against the wrong kind of mid-major team that's got good but not great juniors and seniors and fifth-year seniors and guys who are experienced and strong. You know, it's like men playing against boys. Young guys start to fade. Same thing happens with Kentucky. I mean, you take a look at the same thing. They've got tremendous talent on those teams. And the upside of all of those very much heralded freshmen is, you know, just off the charts. But the fact is, in a one-and-done situation come March, um, you know, if you're playing against – the same type of plea, and I call it the anatomy of a bracket buster. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got seniors, they're experienced, they're, you're playing against men, you got 18 year olds playing against 22 year olds, and that gap is tremendous. Yeah. You know, you have the propensity for, you know, a, an upset. Right. But right now, you know, obviously the Blue Bloods uh, carry the day. I mean, whether it's Duke, Kentucky, Kansas. Kansas has played pretty well. I think Michigan State probably shouldn't be in that category right now, even though young man Bridges is is a tremendous athlete, but he certainly needs some help. Um, And then you have other teams that certainly can make a mark. I I thought that Xavier, even though they lost a couple of good players inside, come March because their guard play is is so tremendous, and that's what you need. You know, I picked my final four that I picked was, um, who was it? It was Duke, Kansas, uh, Xavier and somebody else that I guess I left out, but it, it was one of the other blue bloods. Um, mm. Bottom line is that the game, the parity in the game is such now that you know on most given nights there is about thirty teams that you know the top five can get beaten by that bottom twenty-five teams on a given night, and so you know I'm I'm happy to be able to just watch the games to understand and watch the development of, of young players, of student athletes as well, and also use it as a bully pulpit, once again, to try to continue to sell the value of education. All too often, the voices that are heard are you know, talking about, you know, you need to get paid commensurately, look at how much money the NCAA is making, total misinformation exactly. to a great extent and not understanding it. But what it does, it really clouds and obscures the idea that you're there to get an education and the benefits and stuff that you have come. I mean, you're, you're a beneficiary of this benefactor, the NCAA and these institutions. So what do you, what do you think about uh, Ben Simmons? He had, he had his documentary. He's up there saying, uh, you know, it was a waste of time. Um, and and to, a cert, to, to a certain extent, he has a point because, I, you, know, he's, you know, he's in control of his own situation. He could get an education if he wanted, but it's also harder as an athlete. Your coach is not, that's not the coach's priority. You know, they, they're putting you through all these hours of, of practice or, or games and, and whatnot. 
I mean, what, what's your what's your opinion? But Jamal, on? first of all, there are rules, and you know the the rules need to be enforced with regard to letting students be student athletes, right, right. student athletes be students. I mean, the bottom line is they're only allowed to practice and and do game and team related stuff twenty hours a week and, during and the season, and, and and right, everybody seems to. Um, try to break those rules, and there needs to be enforcement from that standpoint. I'm not absolving, you know, the college basketball gods and, and the NCAA from, you know, exploitation to a certain extent. But going back to Ben Simmons, first of all, Ben Simmons comes from Australia. He comes from a different culture. Maybe education is not as important for him, even though he's of color there in Australia. But the burden of failure in, in lacking uh, the ability to utilize the, this opportunity to get a degree and to move forward, that burden of failure falls on our kids. Now, when Ben Simmons came over to the U.S., Ben Simmons, there was no right to play college sports. Let me start there. Right. Exactly. You know, you have you have your inalienable natural rights and you have statutory rights. But these people keep who, who talk about pay for play, they keep thinking that there's some right to play college sports, and they proceed from there, and that, that's that's a fallacy. But Ben Simmons talks about being exploited. He got his cost of attendance. He got his room, board, books, tuition, unlimited food. He got his medical benefits. He got all of these things. Ben Simmons could have gone to the DL right. and played. You can go there after high school right. you and play in the DL. You don't have to go to college. You right. could have done a year. Yeah, you could have done all those things. Made a but he came over here to exploit the attention he was going to get to build his brand. And he got it. Right. So to sit here and then all of a sudden poo-poo the very system that you exploited is, is just nonsense. I mean, I, you talk about what do I think, I don't think anything of it, actually. <laughs> you know, that's just a kid giving a microphone and without any thought or right. any you know basis is just spouting off. And, and trying to justify what he did. Yeah. I mean, that, that to, me, it, to me let down his team. And his lasting legacy is he hurt LSU – in their, um, you know, their academic progress rate. Yeah, but you know, LSU makes it. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of like when you're in the agent business, you you either make a deal with the devil or right. you don't. Oh, no question. You, you see, I'm no saying? question. You make the deal with the devil, and you know, because I, my principal, you know, Johnny could have said, "Listen, we know we know what is heading. We don't want a part of it. You know, we're going to do." And you know, that just doesn't. That's not going to happen. You know. They deserved the pain. I mean, cause, because they made the deal, like you said, with the devil. They knew he was coming for one year. And the same thing, you look at Kentucky, you look at Duke. The problem with me is that it, the, those aren't sustaining programs. I mean, they are to a certain extent, but the new faces every single year, and you wind up losing other faces. To me, that's not what this game is all about. I mean, I would rather, if I'm building a program, I'd rather have continuity and to be able to sustain by getting guys who have potential and can be developed as opposed to the guy who I know is coming for one year and leaving because it just totally messes up your culture. So let me ask you about, you know, specifically Duke and uh, Coach K. I mean, Coach K had all kind of success prior to going after the one-and-dones. You know, he was making – he was winning the national championships, you know, supposedly, supposedly building, you know, going about it the right way. Um, he didn't have to. He didn't have to uh, go look for one and dones to have a successful program. But he, but yet he still did. So I'm wondering why. Well, if you're not winning national championships and your major comp- competition is by doing right. it that way, if you're not winning national championship, you ain't getting paid ten million dollars a year. Exactly. But he won with Shire and he uh, did. But but then everybody else started doing it the other way. Then when that was how long ago? And then after that when. 
Calipari got to Kentucky and he started building it that way and others started bringing these people in. You can't get left behind because if you don't start winning, yeah, you plateau. I don't think Duke would ever fire Mike Krzyzewski. And he also has, but, but you know, can you justify getting paid the kind of money you're getting paid <laughs> right, when right. you're not winning national championships? Right. And, and, and let's face it, I mean, the guy has done a terrific job with the players that he's had and he's maintained some kind of a program. So, I don't, you know, it is what it is. You make that choice. The university makes that choice as well to have guys coming in and using it as a way station to move on. I mean, that for an academic institution like Duke, it kind of surprises me that you know voices and I, voices and eyebrows haven't been raised. But well, but you know, you know why? These are the choices that they make. Because, oh, because they've made the deal. They've made the same deal with the devil. You know that 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 it, to a large extent. That's the way of the world, and that's we we've bought into that we bought into that system. You're bringing in, you know, the Corey McGetty. Because remember, at each step, remember at first, I remember that first group when Alan Avi and those guys. Um, he was saying, "Well, I'm not going to raise the banner until those guys come back and graduate." Remember, and then yeah. you know that went by the wayside. Yeah, he said, "You quickly. know what?" B.B. Uh, King said, this is the way life has got to be. You know, you know, you know what I See, think? nobody points out that hypocrisy, but you're absolutely right. Uh, and that, you know, you don't raise a banner until these guys graduate. And then all of a sudden, graduation doesn't mean much anymore. They'll say, oh, well, they're making millions and millions of dollars. Okay, fine. Yeah, a lot of guys can do that. But in the end, were they there to make millions and millions of dollars to play one year? Or were they there to get an education, be part of the university community, to add to that community? Well, Cal- well Calipari will... I mean, he's totally, uh, he doesn't talk about school graduation at all. He, he told, all he's talking about is, listen, uh, this is my job to get them ready for the pros that come here because they want to be pros. If it takes one year, two years, he, that's all he talks about is, is that part of the game. So he, education isn't even discussed. You know, I had a, a very interesting conversation. Maybe we're in a, in a C-shift. At the same camp up at Yale, the, uh, it was a, it's a Division three camp mm-hmm. they had at Yale. But one of the parents there, this guy, uh, his son was there, who was committed to Middlebury. But this is for a Division three thing, and he said, "Listen, you know, we want to go D three, unless unless we're gonna unless my son, he's got a younger, unless he is like top tier material. Mm-hmm. Why go there? Because you're not gonna because you're gonna get sucked up in that same professional atmosphere. You're not gonna get the same type of education. I'd rather go to." Williams or Amherst or these top tier Division three things, unless unless I'm like a Lynn Elm, you know, unless unless my kid is what's the kid down the line like the number one uh, the number one recruit, if yeah if he's uh, Quincy Carr whatever, if he's one of those type of kids, yeah, go to Kentucky, go to Duke, but otherwise, why am I gonna do that? I want him to go to University of Chicago. I want him to go to these a top D three school. Get a great education, go on a, a get spend my summer abroad, <laughs> you know, right. do a real thing. And I thought that his, and that's what his son was. Talking about. I thought that it was almost a very pragmatic approach to this whole thing. He said, "Yeah, if I'm if I'm top tier, sure, I'll but, go there. But otherwise, I want to go to one of these schools and get a great education." But not many of these kids have that kind of guidance, and many of them are thrown by the accolades and the other trappings of playing big time college sports and then the dream of playing in the NBA. Once guys get to those power conferences, particularly you ask any one of those basketball players as they come in as freshmen, do you think you can play in the league? And they all say, yeah. Right. Um, and that's where one and done has 
been somewhat of an issue, but it's also been somewhat of a filter because after that first year, only a few guys come. And now with the advent of the Euros coming over, fewer and fewer freshmen are going to get drafted because of, you know, lack of maturity and the type of preparation because Euros go all out. They don't worry about school. They just go and they work <laughs> on their game. But in the end, you know, after that first year, a number of freshmen are able to go and the rest you're told to wait another year. And when they get to sophomore year, another group might come out. And then that group says, to a large extent, wait another year. And like I said, you know, next thing you know, they're juniors. And pretty soon, cats actually get an education. That's right. Which, right. If you stay which around. Which is part of You stay around long enough long if you're doing the right thing. But they also need advocacy with regard to the amount of time that they spend on the sport. Because I know when I played, we were still allowed to be students as well as athletes. If I had a test or I had to study, I had to tell Coach Drizel. He might stomp his foot or something, but they let me go. Oh, hell boy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, seriously. And, and, you know, if we had other things uh, involved, we didn't spend so much time in basketball that we couldn't be part of the university right. community. And, and that, to me, that's what being at college is all about. You, you shouldn't be sequestered just to go there and play sports and, and stay, um, you know, um, be a, a monomaniac, so to speak. You're there to experience everything that that university has offered because 10 years from now, when your NBA career is over, if you get one, you still have to be back out there in that right. society and you have to learn how to deal. And so many guys can't because they missed that time in that laboratory. So, I mean, I, 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 it just it makes me crazy to hear you know, people who want to pay athletes when you quantify room, board, books, tuition, cost of attendance money that they're getting, it goes anywhere from three to $5,000. You look at medical benefits that you're getting, and in some instances, they go beyond your eligibility. I know the PAC-12 has proposed five years. That's more than the NFL, who says only three years after you're finished playing. And then, after quantifying that money, remember, the average student in America comes out with about $30,000 of debt. Yep. And you come out debt-free, debt free? and this is not a good deal for you on an annual basis. And then finally, you know, you look at trainers, you go to these health clubs, and you see people with personal trainers, and you see how much they pay to, to be on these facilities. Here you are in a world-class facility with world-class trainers, coaches, and everybody. If you were to take and try to put a price tag on that, how much would that cost? Right. So you aggregate and quantify all of that stuff. These kids are more do, than getting paid. I I agree with that, but it just seems like it takes it takes the the extraordinary kid in in the in the current system it takes almost the extraordinary kid to be able to to really take advantage of that to take advantage of the education part of it. Oh yeah, because. Yeah. It's right. almost like you need that you needed that guidance beforehand. Right. And you got to so, be strong. So you have to right. you have to understand right. why you're there to begin with. And and that's right. that's not the norm. That, that's but that's why we those of us who are thinking straight, those of us who are not thinking about the exploitation, those of us who are not thinking that the end all be all is collegiate athletes and college sports, then that are thinking that the the tail needs to wag the dog and it's not part of the education mission that's why we need to be that voice out there i you know the kids that are in now you know we might have lost them to a certain extent but the kids in junior high school middle school the kids in high school they need to hear this because that's where you change the culture you're not going to change the culture with the current kids you're going to change them with the ones who are coming in and with the parents that mm -hmm. same parent that you spoke of you know that it shouldn't be um unique to that that young man or, or that socio, social strata. 
that should permeate, you know, just about every walk of life when parents are talking about their kids' futures. And I think that, see, to me, it goes back to controlling the system. You know, that, that's what, that's what uh, 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 what's the name, Richard Williams was talking about in terms of um, he want, his vision was to kind of go back to the old Negro League system of like, he said, he said, we have to create our own champions. They're not trying to create champions for us. You know, we got to create our own champions. So he wanted to have this camp. Said because if you rely, what he say? He said, uh, if if um, if you rely on Pharaoh, if when Pharaohs define your promised land, you're probably not going to reach it. And that's what we're saying. I mean, in this ideal world, you control. And, and trust me, they're crooks in our. They're they're black crooks. They're exploiters too. They're, they're I mean, However, but if if there's a if there are enough conscious people to know this is not the way we're running this, because you're going to go, you guys are going to go to Duke, uh, but you're going to go to all these world class institutions but you're going to get a world-class and you're not going to get a cut rate right. education and i know it but look young people by definition right they'll, they'll they're trying to get over but you also need the advocacy once they're there because right. once they're there and you right. get cut off from these kids you can send that message middle school or high school but if you don't have the advocacy there and you don't have the hammer that can check the power of the coaches who are tracking these kids, particularly in, in football and to a great extent in basketball, into courses that they can't use and not interested right. in that don't challenge them only to keep them eligible. Right. I mean, you, you pretty much lost the battle. And, that, and that's where I think a lot of the, the people who are screaming pay the players comes from. It comes from it's, – it's almost an argument of, well, since we know you're not giving them an education, give them something. Right. So, and, and that's probably the wrong way to go about it. We just demand the education. That's, to me, as I, we talked offline um, about that article that, that Nicholas Kristof wrote several months ago about racism without racists. That's what we're seeing right. in, that issue, in that situation. And I don't care who it is, my colleagues at ESPN and other places, I'd be more than happy to sit down and debate them. Matter of fact, I had a debate with Joe Nocera, one of your former colleagues, about this very thing. And they always want to bring up anecdotes and they want to talk about the past. They don't recognize the reforms being made right now. And there's plenty more to be done. But nevertheless, instead of you know, making that tired argument they need to pay them. All oh, yeah, the coaches are making money yeah, and this ridiculous. and that. That's Most of that money, argument. right. Most of that money is coming back to student-athlete benefits. And a lot of times the institutions, it's not the NCAA, it's the institutions right. that are changing the stuff. But the bottom line is that you've got to be able to find a way, and I say it's an antitrust exemption, so that these death by a thousand cuts litigation, some of them, a legitimate O'Bannon was legitimate because that is a right. natural right, your right to likeness, and right. they, they shouldn't abrogate that. And even the Northwestern argument that they're telling them they can't tweet, well, that's the right to free expression. You can't abrogate that. Maybe you regulate the time and, and the place, but you can't you know, regulate the, the content of it to a great extent. But having said that, you know, still in all, it comes down to you know, being able to balance those equities and to make sure that kids understand it's their right to be able to do all of the things that they want to be able to do within that agreement as a benefactor and beneficiary. Well, what I do like is a model that if I'm, if I'm at Alabama and we go to a bowl game and the payout of the bowl game is, you know, $20 million, I like the idea of getting a percentage of that that's put in escrow. So that at the end of my career, let's say if we go to five bowl games in a row, because you're basically talking about revenue sharing. 
And I don't mind putting a percentage of that in escrow. So when I graduate, I've got whatever we agree with, we've got like a percent of this bowl, whatever that's, that's I've kind of earned. It's, it's basically revenue sharing. It's not paying me, but it's, it's basically I help this program become successful. We go, to the, we go to the Rose Bowl. The payout is $20 million, and I will get a percentage, and that will be in escrow. And when I graduate, there will be X number of dollars in this account. See, if there's something that was related to, and you know, Judge Wilkins in the O'Bannon case tried to do that with the $5,000 to pay kids and put, and I would suggest, and I've always suggested, because that's a, a natural right that you can't abrogate that right, that they do find a way to have them share that. And upon graduation, and that's the key, upon graduation, right that you know that money is in escrow and a trust and you receive it an equitable cut for all all student athletes not just the the revenue generators because it still comes down to teaching pro social uh things as well if you're involved in getting a scholarship and you're donating to the school and you see guys succeed academically you're more prone to give money just as if they were succeeding on the on the court Mm-hmm. And if you're somebody who received that benefit, the pro-social um, conduct is that you received that benefit and it's helped you. You're going to go back and you're going to give more also. So, you know, those are some goals that we need to focus on with regard to, you know, this whole uh, how this whole thing works as opposed to, you know, just flat out paying. And then one thing that we keep forgetting and nobody understands the fact that, do you know that the room and board element is not necessarily tied to education, therefore it's taxable. And the IRS has just turned and looked the other way. You start giving more and more benefits, the IRS is gonna start taking its big hand and start putting its hand in these students' pockets. Now you've added another layer of complication for students, student athletes, who are receiving this money. Well, somebody was saying, just in fact at the University of Maryland, because we had this conversation and and, uh, she was saying that, well, um, one way you could you could do this kind of stuff is uh, you're right because once you start because that's the whole that that's been how the NCA is getting away with this all these years about this nonprofit thing is essentially the scholarship is a contract but she was saying that that at a particular school you know you could have donors to kind of get around that and say you know what we want to fund because we, our, our conversation was about lifetime education mm-hmm. that if the University of Maryland makes a commitment to you then whenever you want to come back, absolutely, a hundred years from now, unless you transfer to Duke, then Duke, no, 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 then Duke assumes. Who would do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. But then, but then Duke would assume that responsibility. But somebody's got the responsibility, whether it's this year, whether it's a hundred, because she was saying some people said, well, there's a statute of limitations. Well, wait a minute. When you look at the record book, there's no statute of limitations. Absolutely. We were 19, we are nine and one in 1976. And in 2016, Still, nine and one, and that, is still and that contributed to where you are now. And see, that to me would work more so than providing monies that aren't necessarily tied to the education mission. You know, to give people the opportunity to come back and finish their degrees whenever. And I think that's part of reform that many of the individual institutions are adopting. You know, the reentry programs, if you will, and even at some point the whole body of the NCAA, which folks need to also understand that the NCAA is not a monolith. The NCAA is made up of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of schools, Division One, 351 schools who all have a say in what goes on. So it's not like this is some, 
you know, monolithic power that's, you know, descending upon all of sports and making these decisions. These are the schools themselves making, making those decisions. Let me say, our guest has been uh, the great Lynn Elmore is a CBS, ESPN, Fox, and that's <laughs> a free agent. Uh, um, but before we, before we let you go, what if you could wave, if you were the emperor of the NCAA and you could make one kind of major thing happen, I mean, you could, you know, what would be the thing that you would make happen in, 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 in all of this, in this enterprise, this multi-billion dollar enterprise? What I would do, um, recognizing I'm the emperor and I'm in charge of morality, ethics, and balance of equities, I would exempt myself from any antitrust types of lawsuits and to be able to make decisions that, you know, in order to the benefit of student athletes uh, and less to the benefits of, of individuals and, and those. And to create a marketplace where people are fairly compensated, but it's not so overbearing and, and people are able to build facilities, but it's not the arms race that we see, that, um, that student athletes have the ability to not only pursue their sport, but also to pursue an education and, and be students. I mean, if I wave my magic wand, the best way to do that is to keep them out of court and to allow the right-thinking people to make these decisions to the benefit of student-athlete. I know that's broad, but that's the way I work. Hmm. This is part one. We're going to come <laughs> back from part two. Now, this, is, this has been a, f a phenomenal conversation, which we knew it would be. Well, right. Now, this is great. Well, I appreciate Lynn. the opportunity. No, no, man. This is, like I said, part one, because there's just so many other. Uh, yeah, we didn't get to a bunch of stuff. Uh, I mean, I'll come back. hot yeah. seat. Oh yeah, John Thompson. Well, let's do. Well, it, listen, in, in that it, case, to be continued. <laughs> yeah, John, big John. They 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 can't fire John Thompson, can they? Well, you know, if they fire JT three, they're firing Big John too, and you know, you just don't know if they can do that. But the alumni to have the temerity to call for his ouster. You know, this must be some brand new alumni. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, gelatos here. Memory John? challenge. Yeah, who's John? Who's John? John? Who's your dad? Yeah. Anyway, listen. Hey, our guest has been the great Lynn Elmore. Lynn, thanks so much, man, for coming. This was great. Well, thank you. I and, loved it. Yeah. Now we got to do this again. And at Jamal, of course, thank you. And right, he said thank you for snapping all this stuff. And uh, we. I didn't break your camera, did I? It's okay. <laughs> and uh, we're coming up uh, for for our listeners, our trillions of listeners. We're coming up on our hundredth podcast. And we're having a celebration on December 5th. Uh, Lynn, you're invited at Chocolate Restaurant in Harlem, oh, USA. I'm not, I won't be here, but yeah. I'll be there in spirit. Okay, I'll be there in spirit. Take a rain check. Well, I don't know. That's it. But, you know, it, well, we can always, you know, you know where we are. Only you know where we are. You come back, shoot some pool, you know. Kids will love it. Actually, we're here on Saturday morning. Oh, I like that. From, uh, from um, like we do chess. Chess, we have a guy coming in. Done doing chess from uh, 9.30 to about 10. Then we upstairs, we got a little indoor volleyball, I mean, uh, soccer, because our program is 7 to 14. Mm -hmm. And uh, up there, a little gym, and then we do pool. I mean, it's really a lot of, a lot of fun. shuffleboard and stuff. Anyway, so uh, thank you, everybody. We will see you next week, or you'll listen to you on the other side. Thank you. Bye. God bless.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.